So the right call, but with the wrong motives. This is the um, title of our sermon today is The Right Call, But Wrong Motives. It's, we're coming back to the book of 1 Samuel, and you're continuing our study in this book, really, that has a theme of uh, kingship that becomes um, a new history time in Israel, a new era where they're transitioning from the period of the judges and coming out to kingship. And I think the song that Hannah's, uh has on, on the beginning chapter, uh, the second chapter, that God humbles the pride, the proud, but he lifts up the humble. I think that is a, um, a theme that will run through all this book, really, and even bringing the bringing of David to be the future king, you know, as the humble shepherd boy being lifted up, and the first king, Saul, uh, the prideful one, being humbled. We will see that again and again. But today we, we pick up from uh, the part where last week we saw that the Israelites have repented, that they have confessed to the Lord that they were putting their trust in the wrong place. Um, and it was a national event. Uh, it was pretty amazing. And the Lord helped them and defeated the Philistines. And now we find ourselves here where they come with this request, a right one, but with the wrong motives. All right, so 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we're starting on verse 1, going, making our way through verse 22. Thus says the word of God. And it came about when Samuel was told that he was appointed, he appointed his sons over uh, Israel, judges over Israel. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah. They were judging Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain, and took tribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the, thing what, but the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when, he said, when they said, give us a king to judge us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they, have, they are doing to you also. Now they then listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who asked of him of a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for, for yourself, for himself in the chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some of you to do his plowing, to reap his harvest, and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. 
He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and your vineyards and give to his officers, to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants, your best young man and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks. And you yourself, yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you um, in this long uh, part of the scriptures. Um, I know that there's a lot in here, Lord, but I pray that you would open our understanding and help us to relate to it. There are so many things that are far-fetched from our reality, but your presence, your ways of working with your people is still the same. And I pray that you would help us to, to, to have clarity on how to bridge this um, gap between um, almost 3,000 years of history. Lord, I pray that your word will be made clear and bring conviction to our hearts. Um, give us clarity. Help me in my um, unfitness to, to preach your words. I pray for your help and that your Holy Spirit will be illuminating their understanding of all the believers that are here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this is the context. You will remember that um, people of Israel defeated the Philistines, and now they make a request, a request for a king. That's not the first time this happens. In the book of Judges, we see them actually asking a Gideon to, to reign over them, and he refuses. In the, in the circumstance here in our passage, they made the right call. The problem was that they had the wrong motives. It is important that we take a look at this request uh, at different angles. What I want to do today is we want, I want to see how the people saw their request, I want, how God saw it, and even how the prophet of God, Samuel, saw it. This message is important for us because we too have special requests and desires. <coughs> that we bring before God. But the way we see it might not be the, the way that God sees it. So to facilitate our study in this passage, I broke down the text in three main divisions. You have there your outline. Um, I'll send you the study questions later, um, but this is the outline. First, um, we'll see the perfectly reasonable but godless, godless request from verses 1 to 9. Then we'll see we'll read that Samuel's perfectly needed godly warning 
uh, from verses 10 to 18, and then we'll hear the perfectly fitting answer from God, verses 19 through 22. So first, the perfectly reasonable but godless request. There is a context for this request. One is the leadership discontinuity. We start our text learning that the prophet Samuel has aged. In chapter 7, Samuel was probably in his mid-30s. Now he's at age. We don't know exactly, but somewhat 30 to 40 years have passed between these two chapters. Now not only has Samuel grown old, but his sons have been judges long enough so the people would know that they were poor quality judges. They were not good judges. He then devised a succession plan, not a very wise one at that. It was unusual for a judge to appoint his own sons as judges, for judgeship was not hereditary. Um, In fact, you remember that um, Judges chapter 8, I referenced to that Gideon refused to establish his own sons as judges. I mean, with the priests, the regulation given in the book of Leviticus was that they would, you know, succeed from their children, would be passed on the priesthood. But with the judges, that's, that was not the case. Um, though Eli judged for Israel for 40 years, his sons are never said to have judged. That, that was interesting. He was a priest, and they, they carried on the priesthood, but not the judgeship. It may be that the narrator calls the audience the attention to this new development, this experiment that Samuel was trying out, were certainly a breach of the old practice of waiting for the divine appointment of a new judge. And possibly that was the cause of the issue of the family problems he had. He certainly foreshadows the problems of hereditary kingship and hindering divine choice. God is the one that appoints it. I want to show you attention here to um, verse uh, 2. Well, actually, verse 1, it says that he appointed his sons. That's the same word that we find in verse 5, was the people are asking that God would appoint a king. So that kind of setting apart of someone to do that. Generally speaking, um, these names in the Old Testament has a significance, and I think the author made sure that we knew. You know, they were insignificant. We're not going to hear about them later in the story. But he made sure that we knew their names. Um, Joel... That means Yahweh is God or uh, the Lord is God Um, in Hebrew. Abijah means my father is Yahweh, so my father is the Lord. And as you read their description, you you think that that is far from the truth. God is not the Lord of them. They're being corrupt. So what is their problem? Verse 3, they turned aside after dishonest gain and took tribes and perverted justice. Samuel's sons, in contrast to their father, violate their fundamental principles of the Mosaic law pertaining to the ethical uh, conduct of the judges. So if you open your Bible to Deuteronomy 16, verse 19, what was the instruction that was given to those that were ruling, those that were in leadership in Israel? Verse 16, 19, it says, you shall not distort justice, you shall not be partial, you shall not take a bribe, 
For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. So the expression to take a bribe and pervert justice appeared also paired with um, uh, together in Proverbs 17.23 where it says, A wicked man receives a bribe from the bosom to pervert the ways of justice. So um, that's the sad context that we find ourselves here where the sons of Samuel are not carrying out what he had done. Uh, it, w- it was different from the priesthood of Eli, the judge before him. We remember that both him, the priest, and his sons were corrupt. In this case, Samuel was still a really good judge and good prophet, but his sons went on the other way. The word uh, perverting justice, mishpat, is a word that in Hebrew will come a lot in this passage. Um, justice, when they, when they ask a, a king to judge over us, that is the same word there. So the scripture is against um, these, this kind of corruption, perverting justice. Now, I do want to just make a side comment here. I know that we talked a lot about the, the, the parent and how he follows on the steps of his father, like what happened with Eli. But then here we have a godly father, Samuel, and they have um, not so good sons. So I'm, I'm not going to read it, but you can take notes there in Ezekiel 18 for a discussion on this. What does the God word talks about a father carrying on the sins of their sons and the sons being like the father? Um, each person is held accountable for their own behavior. Um, that's what it, what it is there. Now, what is the content of their request? What they're asking for from verses 4 to 6. We read that all the elders of Israel came to Samuel at his home in Ramah to confront him with the failures of the existing form of government and to propose an alternative solution. The elders begin their meeting with Samuel by giving a reasonable assessment of the situation. I think what their assessment was valid. They were giving an accurate description. Samuel entered his years of physical decline uh, and his successors did not walk in his ways. Um, I, I, you know, I think about us aging. Uh, my dad always comes to mind because he, he, he refuses to say that he's getting old. Uh, but I think there's humility in saying that we're limited. There's not so much that we can do. And I think with Samuel, he, he probably realized his ability to travel around the country and to do certain things. So um, I think um, the people are, are reading it correctly. Um, but they saw, living the days of Eli, how you know a corrupt priesthood and a corrupt judgeship, it, it's really bad. The country will, will go um, in failure as well. And that's what was happening. So they were fearful. Now they provide a a solution that is not so correct before the Lord. Appoint a king to lead over us, such as all the other nations have. I want to draw your attention to Samuel's response because that really clues us in to, is this a good request? Because as we're going to see, um, Actually, there is a lot of positives of having a king, even in the scripture. 
But that thing displeased Samuel. Literally, in the original text, it means it was evil in the eyes of Samuel. So the men of God sought right through it. Let us reflect why it was so displeasing to Samuel then. How does this harmonize with the view of kingship at the end of the book of Judges? Because you, you, read, you read Judges and you keep listening to them repeating again and again. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the lack of that royal leadership People were doing whatever they thought was best. They didn't have a leader to guide them and to point them in the right way. So now we turn to Samuel, which is the continuation of that narrative, and that doesn't seem so positive. Their request was not unreasonable. In fact, the law had a provision for when they eventually had a desire for a king to rule over them, like the other nations. So let's open our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 17, and we'll see those instructions here. So this is not coming out of the nowhere. Deuteronomy chapter 17. And um, so here's the instructions. Verse 14. Now when will you enter the land which the Lord your God has given you? I'm sorry, I'll give you time to find it. So Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse, starting on verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you possess it and live in it, you say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one among your countrymen, one who said, you shall set a king as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. So God did make a provision for that, but he also said this is going to be different. Yet you're choosing a king in the concept of having a king like the other nations, but yet your king is not going to be like the kings of other nations. They have to be of the people of God, and, and we'll see more instructions here. We ought to be reminded that Israel in the Old Testament was God's special chosen people, and they were not supposed to be like everyone else. Remember in Leviticus 20, 26, you must be holy for I am holy. The word holy, it means separate. It means different, set apart from everyone else. Um, and I have set you apart, in Leviticus 20, 26 says, I have set you apart from the other peoples to be mine. You are, you are God's children. That was uh, for the people of Israel. They were God's special possession. Then the statement in Judges reflects that this uh, Deuteronomic ideal of a king that is promotes by law and his teaching. So if you keep reading verses, uh, what, what then what this king should do that is different from the other nations? Because the other kings, they have several wives. They have a huge military um, uh, army. And yet, if you start reading in verse 17, it says, this king that you're going to set up of yourselves shall not multiply wives for himself, or else your heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver or gold for himself. He's not seeking to become rich. He's not seeking to form political alliances by marrying multiple women from different countries. 
Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, it shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So God has given clear directives. You want to put a king for yourselves? This is how you ought to do it. Uh, you're going to choose someone that is going to follow God's word, God's instructions, to really do justice, right? That they're looking for a king to lead them but to lead them in justice. That's what God is giving them the instruction for. I believe that Samuel uh, saw right through their politically correct request. You know, they're, they're, they're asking something that is politically correct, right? We need a leader. A leader that will lead us with justice, that will judge us, that will rule over us. No doubt their request was heavily motivated by the elders' desire to defeat the oppressive enemies. They, they were afraid. They had real enemies attacking and trying to enslave them. However, it was an attempt to accomplish through a political act that which could only be achieved through the ongoing and spiritual responsibility. A king would have a spiritual responsibility in God's plan. From Israel's perspective, so if you keep looking, the people do not view their request for a king as a rejection of the Lord. That's not what they're seeing. Like the other nations which claim that a God gives victory to their king, Israel wants a king who is, support, who is supported by God. Right? We, we, from our previous studies, we noted that whenever they had war, they, they thought that the gods were on their side, and, and if we put the whole thing where we saw with the Philistines, they had the God of the Philistines and the God of Israelites, and when they defeated the Israelites, they thought, oh, look at our God, is more powerful. So they're thinking, well, we have a God too, and now we just need a king that is supported by God. But we see in a moment the Lord viewed their request as a rejection of his authority. Samuel thought it was obvious that Israel was dissatisfied with the arrangement under the judges, where God, in response to a crisis, raises up a leader to fight in war. There's no standing army. There's no chariot force. They want a system. And here's, what, here's where we go. They repented of their physical idolatry. They broke their idols. But yet, remember that idolatry, I said this before, it's not the image of the statue, it's what it's connected to. What are they seeking on, that, on those idols? The idols are gone, but the idolatry in their hearts is still there. They want a system where they can be in control. Not God. They're not asking for a king in place of God, but they do want to see some tangible evidence of their military strength able to be called upon immediately in a crisis and serve as a deterrent to a foreign attack. But the Lord demands radical faith on Israel's part that is counter to the cultural norm and expectation. The typical arrangement can easily cause people to trust in the tangible rather than in the God behind it. If we have a king, our confidence is going to be in the king and not the God who supports the king. 
Moses tells Israel that they are not to fear when they see chariot or army enemies. They are to trust in the Lord to fight for them. Just like he did decades earlier. I mean, just in the previous chapter. Remember Ebenezer, the place where they fought? And Samuel even thought that stone there to remind them, look, we can trust God. He protects us. He fights for us. Now, then surprisingly, we hear the Lord having this conversation with Samuel here on uh, verses 7 to 9. He concedes the request. He, there is a concession of the request. And the answer is yes, but there is, there is a but there. What is, what is the, the, the contradiction here? Yes, but this is not a good thing. And a good thing. That's what I put there in a, um, your outline. So coming back to our chapter there, chapter 8. 7. The Lord says, listen to all that the people are saying to you. The Hebrew expression there, listen to it's hear the voice, hear their voice. And there is a, a nuance there to say consent or give them a king. Basically, the Lord is saying, just grant them their request. This statement in verse 7 is slightly different than, than it adds all. God wanted all their concerns to be heard. Where Samuel says that he was um, conceded to their request by giving them a king. It is probably probable that the Lord's statement in verse 7 is a command to concede to their request and give them a king, the king that they desire. They want this, give what they want. They have rejected me as their king. Though the Lord has anticipated that Israel would make such a request, he regards this particular demand as a rejection of his kingship. The reason for his response comes clear in verse 20. The people apparently do not fully trust the Lord to protect them in the battles. Perhaps we should see the people's request again as the background of the loss of the ark. Remember what happened in they went to battle in the ark? They're trying to manipulate God and they bring the ark as this good luck charm and the relic to be used as a way to compel God to intervene on their behalf. The ark's failure to bring victory and then even worse, its capture made it l may have led to the belief that this is ineffective. The people possibly feel that another tactic is needed to do the job that they expected the ark to do. They request a king to lead them in battle. Um, as, as a means to compel God to do what they want. Now, from God's perspective, this is a rejection of his rule because they want to be in direct control of their destiny and of God himself. Their request is contrary to the kind of submission and faith that God demands of them. Um, so this whole thing of, in verse 8 that Samuel, don't be too distraught. You know, they're, doing this, they're not doing this to you, they're doing to me. So it, it's not that he, the Lord is denying that they're rejecting Samuel. It is possible that in Hebrew he's trying to give this exaggerated effect. You know, not X, but Y. So not so much you, Samuel, but put this rejection into proper perspective. They're rejecting me as well, just as much as they're rejecting you. Because Samuel is the Lord's representative. Then, the Lord gives them a warning. 
tell them this warning solemnly, it's a judicial expression. Bring them to court and present the issue here. Present to them what, what is going to happen if they, if they get what they want. Now, I want to take a pause here uh, to put chapter 8 into perspective. Um, chapter 12 that we're going to see in a, you know, a few weeks down the road, it, it confirms chapter 8. It confirms that their demand for a king was truly a rejection from God. We also must note that chapter 7, the one before, is a contrast with chapter 8, that Israel, in her emergency, in her helplessness, her lack of a king, had leaned them to repentance, prayer, and hope upon her ages past. And they found deliverance. There was no mighty king, only a faithful intercessor, only Samuel was there to intercede for them. If chapter 7 forms a contrast with chapter 8, chapter 4 provides a parallel. Look how they put their confidence on the ark, where they're putting their confidence now on a king. They're still seeking the same thing. They're still seeking to have control of their lives, but it's just moving and shifting the place of their confidence. There it appeared as a superstition. You know, God is, the ark is among us, God is among us. They're trying to manipulate God. Now it's political. They want a king over us, a substitute for God. It's the same idolatry. Wisdom has not yet conceived. Israel's situation is full of instructions for us here. It reveals Israel and reveals us. Commentator and pastor Ralph Davis offers us some good points of reflection so far. He says, we have a tendency to assess our problem, problems mechanically rather than spiritually. Look at the assessment of the people of Israel are, are doing here in the situation. Our first impulse is to assume that there is something wrong in our techniques. The need is for adjustment, not repentance. There is something wrong in the system that needs doctoring. How easy for even energetic evangelicals to look for a new gimmick rather than to cry out for a new heart. Instead of looking to God for help, we're more interested in prescribing what form God's help must take. God, here's our my grocery list. This is what you ought to do for me. Our attention is not on God's deliverance in our troubles, but on specifying the method by which he must bring that deliverance. That if, therefore, we trust the method, not the God that will work it out. We're not content with seeking the saving God, but desire to direct how and when he will save. In light of the current situation and the danger, Israel's request for a king was perfectly rational. Yet, Yahweh, the Lord, viewed it as a rejection of his kingship. Our proposals and solutions then come, can be uh, completely reasonable, clearly logical, obviously plausible, and utterly godless. Because some of our idolatry is so sophisticated and appears so reasonable, it can be extremely difficult to detect. But Yahweh's eyes penetrates the fog. Samuel is really experiencing here what Moses did and even Jesus Remember um, that when Jesus was at the crucifixion and on his way to the crucifixion, 
he, he, they, the people said clearly to him, we do not want this man to rule over us. They're refusing. Um, I, I find even some parallels of this in the New Testament. Um, if you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, of, of people really making the right call. They're, it's something good. They're desiring something good, something that has uh, a spiritual implication that is helpful, and yet with the wrong motives. Here's um, in chap uh, Acts chapter 8, we see a, a, the story of Simon. Um, the apostles are preaching, just to give you a little bit of context here, so the apostles are preaching in Samaria, and they have this... Um, kind of delayed, received of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so in verse 14, you see that description that this is happening. And then the apostles get there and they begun laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 18, when Simon, a different Simon, not, not Peter here, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying of the, hand, the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. What was his request? I want other people. I want to have this power so other people will have the Holy Spirit. Was that a right call? Yeah, well, we want people to have God. We want people to have the Holy Spirit. But he, he was wanting that for his self-aggrandizement. And, and the apostles saw right through it. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part, no part or portion on this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours. I pray to the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, in the bondage of iniquity, envy, jealousy, all behind those things. God sees right through our motives. Think about Philippians. Paul is saying, you know, there is a group of people that they are preaching the gospel. Is that the right call? It is. People are being saved. I rejoice with that. Paul is excited about it, yet they were preaching with wrong motives. They wanted it to, to make Paul jealous. Oh, look at the competition. We're doing a better job than you are. God sees our motives. All right, moving on. This, our second point, we see the perfectly needed godly warning. It is a blessing that God does not live us in our own understanding, right? He gives instructions to, to Samuel here. Listen to, listen to them, and and, but testify against them. Tell them straight. Those were Samuel's orders. He was to spell out for Israel what a king, what having a king would be like. So he did, from verses 11 to 18, we see Samuel's disclosure of the ways of a king. Israel must know what a monarchy will cost her. The Hebrew text, um, it says you're, you should tell them the procedure of the king, in verse 9, and then this will be the procedure of the king. Remember that I mentioned that word mishpat in Hebrew, that it, it the word for justice, a lot of translations translate that as the procedure. So this will be the costume. This is how 
kings work. This is how they function. That's basically what he's saying here. So some commentators believe that this is procedure, you know, the royal custom of the time, the typical manner that a, a king rules. But others understand this expression as the justice of the king. What were they asking? A king to judge over us, right? To give us justice. And then Samuel is really making an irony here with them. Is, do you want justice? This is the justice of a king. Let me tell you straight. The way the king will exercise his authority as a judge. I believe on this more literal understanding of the word here that takes its meaning to, uh, to me, rule, justice, or right. There's the irony in verse 5 that they ask the king who will mishpat or judge over them like the nations, but the typical king of the nations do just the opposite of justice. So some historical background here. Israel wants a king that will ensure social justice and national security. The ancient Near Eastern kings, and I, I, I sent an email earlier yesterday to give you some background on the ancient Near East, because there's a lot of things documented from archaeological findings, how the kings worked, and um, how, they, how they did their things. And yet, there is a downside of the king. A royal bureaucratic institution inevitably grows and needs to be subsidized by those whom it protects. As it gains more and more power, his, this royal bureaucracy can easily become oppressive. This is exactly the picture that Samuel paints for the people as he describes what the typical king will be like. God gave instructions. I don't want you to have a king like the nations because this will not be good for you. A king that follows my statutes, that's a king that will be good for you. You want like the nations? Here's what you want, and I'm going to describe it to you. From verse 11, he's going to use this word take. I want you to notice it. Um, verse 11, he will take, um, you take your sons. Verse 11, verse 13, he will take your daughters. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields. Verse 15, he will take the tenth of your seed. So even more striking is the repetition also of the pronoun your, like your sons, your daughter, your field. All of this to emphasize that um, this person, this king that you're trying to put over you is just going to take stuff from you. He's not going to give you as you think. God has been generous, been giving things to us, and yet you, you, you want someone that will be taking from you. Um. And then verse 18 says that they, and this um, taking will become so oppressive that they will cry out for relief from the king that you have chosen. Verb cry out is an irony here because it is used normally to refer to when they're in trouble, when there is war from the enemies. They cry out to God. Now, they're going to cry out to God not because of an enemy, but a king that they have asked to rule over them. And the Lord answered. They, he did do. Now, Samuel is trying to reason with them. I, I really want to, you to, to think about this. He's trying to appeal to the, lo- to the love that they have for the, those that are closest to them. Think of your sons. The king will draft them into the chariots and, and charioteers and horsemen for platoon commanders, for farm labor, for weapons production. What about your daughters? Do you think about them? Trying to prick their conscience. Think about those you love. 
you, you, you see that there are implications for the things that you're asking. You think they will stay at home? No, the king will want them for perfume makers, cooks, and bakers. Government work? Don't think your property is secure. The king will filch your finest fields, vineyards, and olive groves for favored servants. And if that doesn't pill for your land, don't think uh, even your crops are your own. Ever heard of taxes? Royal officers and lackeys have to eat, you know. So you have to tithe your grain and grape uh, grape crops to the king. You even want to use your servants and livestock for work. There's a word for it, slavery. Eventually, that's what's going to happen. I mean, I think, um, I remember when I started working, and I got my first paycheck, and I was so excited, and I saw the big, you know, amount there, and, and you know, oh, wow, the government takes that much from my salary? <laughs> that's a lot of money. So you always, and here in the U.S., the things are a little bit more steep, I think, with taxes. I'm like, boy, that, that's a lot. But that, that's rulership, you know? You, you have a government, and they, that's what they do. They tax us. So Samuel was faithing, uh, faithful in fulfilling his role as a prophet, and I believe that God uses godly people in our lives to warn us of the foolishness of following our own desires. Um, it, it's not that Samuel is saying, you know, kingship is not all bad, but if you want a king like the other nations that will follow their examples and their ways of doing things, this is what you're going to get. We need godly people like Samuel to open our eyes. The blindness of being stubborn, sticking to our own ways, of being wise in our own eyes. I, I can recall the Lord's faithfulness in my own life during my teenage years. When dear brothers and sisters tried to correct my wrong way of thinking, and in my pride I thought I knew better, I, I thought I, I could have... I had enough wisdom to deal with my own issues. Oh, if we could only have a glimpse of the future to see. Looking back, you know, hindsight 2020, I can see the Lord's providence in bringing these fellow believers to warn me. Pridefully, we make goals and plans that are in direct opposition to God's revealed will to us in the scripture. This morning we studied about God's will for us, right? That is in the scripture already. We know what to do, but yet we don't do it. Oh, what fools we make of ourselves when we are wise on our own eyes. Many Proverbs warns us the foolishness of thinking that one can outsmart God. Many times we might make the right calls, but with wrong motives. I want you to open your Bible to Proverbs. I, want to, I just want to walk you a few of these um, little jams here that we have in the book of Proverbs. So starting in chapter 5, go to verse 21. Do a little rapid fire here in the book of Proverbs and, and see warnings that we have from God. Chapter 5, verse 21. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. He watches all his paths. He knows all that we do. Chapter 10, verse 17. He is on the path of life who heeds instruction. But he who ignores reproof goes astray. 
chapter 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Chapter 16, 2. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weights the motives. Isn't that interesting that we, we think that, oh, this, this is right? This couldn't be further from being right. The Lord knows the motives. Chapter 21, too, kind of similar to the previous. Every man's way is right on his own eyes, but the Lord weights the hearts. Chapter 21, verse 11. When the scoffer is punished, the naive becomes wise. But when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. And then chapter 26, verse 12. Do you see a man wise on his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. And I, why I bring all these verses here in Proverbs, as I look at these references, I see a sense of hopelessness for those who insist on their own way, for those who refuse to be teachable, for those who refuse to be instructed. But on the other hand, I, I do see hope. Hope for, for the wise. You see, the wise man in Proverbs is not the know-it-all, I know it all, but the one who listens, the one that searches his heart, the ones that evaluate his own motives and the ones who learn. You know, this is the way I'm going, but I see my motives here. I need to turn it around. So I encourage you to receive God's warning and find life. Receive his instructions and do not be deceived by your own heart. Do not be prideful. Listen to God's instruction. Lastly, we'll see here from verses 19 to 22 in 1 Samuel 8, the perfectly fitting answer from God. The Lord sent instruction to his people, and they refused. Verse 19 says that the people refused to listen. The author is stressing the people's insistence, thereby highlighting their culpability and observing the Lord of any wrongdoing in this matter. He did warn them, but yet didn't heed it. People refuse to listen to Samuel. And what is their answer there? Verse 20. No, but we want, uh, there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go before us and fight our battles. There it is. We want a physical, tangible thing that we can see. This God that has control over us, we don't see him. We can't manipulate him. We want something that we can manipulate, that we can control. He'll fight our battles. That's the underlying reason for the people's demand emerges right here. Verse 22, we hear that everyone went back to their own town. Um, I don't know why Samuel didn't already do the choosing, maybe he dismisses them in hope that that silent treatment will help them to think through their foolish decisions. Samuel delays, perhaps hoping that the Lord will change his mind. 
perhaps his silence is an intercession has some effect. Um, and we'll see next next week how that gonna go. But you see, dear friends, the Lord's verdict is never arbitrary. Not only judges all by his own unchanging standards. Many times we see that he promises that he's going to judge his people, he's going to bring consequences, but at times his judgment is also fitting to the sins committed. Let's go to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. God gives our request at times. Our sinful and Self, self-centered requests. Um, and let's start here from verse 10. You see, Psalm 106 is recounting, kind of retelling some of the ways that God worked with the people. And verse 10 says that he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them and he redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And talking about Egypt, the water covered their adversaries, no one them was left. God defeated their enemies in a way that was beyond repair. And they believed his word, and they were singing his praise. But quickly, quickly, verse 13, they quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they craved, they desired intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And what happened? Verse 15, so he gave them their request, but sent a waste and disease among them. Many times God will grant our request here. They got the king that they were looking for, but their kings did not provide what they desired. Um, like this, the, the psalmist, um, they were thinking, oh, we got what we wanted. We're going to be fulfilled. And you get it. And no, it doesn't fulfill. When we insist in our own way, refusing to be warned by God's instructions, he let us have what we want. He cannot, um, not that he cannot resist us or acquiesce to do our bidding, but he let us taste the bitter consequences of our foolish way. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to read it here all, but Romans 1.24, it's the picture of our world today, isn't it? People are pursuing their, their own desires and they started with sexual immorality. And the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of man. Verse 24, God gave them over into the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies will be dishonored among them. Where they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather and the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It is sad when God grants our requests that are not good for us. But in a sense, in his sovereignty, he does allow these things to happen and to humble us so that we might turn to him. So I'd like to finish our message with some encouragement and hope for us. 1 Samuel 8 can, it can be a mirror to us. We have seen that we can have perfectly have perfectly reasonable desires turn into godless requests to God. How easily we misplace our trust. How ashamed we are of being different. 
How resistant to any word that does not agree with our opinion. There, we're revealed. We have seen that mirror how we refuse to heed perfectly needed counsel and war warning from godly people around us. We harden our hearts to be deceived by the deceitfulness of our own idolatry. For our desire for security, stability, control. Lastly, we looked at this mirror and we see that God will sometimes give our requests to our own peril. On the other hand, we should also be thankful that many times the Lord in his loving kindness does not give us what we wanted. How many mercies may hide there? His refusals are not indifference, but it may be his kindness. You see, we all have a king. We all have a Lord over our lives. Our default as humans is to be at the throne of our hearts. It's all about self. It's all about me. But God sent another king, a Messiah who will rule over our deception who will displace our selfishness, stubbornness, and hopelessness. Although kingship originated in Israel with men's ill-conceived motives, it was ultimately part of the Lord's plan to provide a line of clean of kings that will culminate in the coming of the Messiah. The failure of Israel's kings engendered an anticipation among the people of one who would achieve what the Lord required. It is Jesus the root and the descendant of David, that is going to be that king who perfectly fills the role of king of kings for God's people. Let's close with Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. We need to displace the king of self in our hearts, and we need to have Jesus at at the throne of our hearts. For those of us who have put their trust in Christ, we can praise him that though we might struggle with our desires, we might struggle with our motives, that he is king. And he cannot be, and he will not be displaced. Um, there's a picture of heaven here. Revelation 19, verse 11 says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, the white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and it is righteousness. He judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood the king that came to die on our behalf to take upon himself our sins. His name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes up a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he threads the winepress with fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his tie, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Father, we come before you knowing that many a times we are like the people of Israel.
wanting to control every facet of our lives, and yet we displace you from your rightful throne. I pray that you would teach us to be warned when you send people around us to encourage us, to warn us of our wrong past, even of our wrong motives, that we might be doing the right thing, but yet with a different intention, an intention that is not pleasing to you. Pray, Lord, that we would submit to Christ's lordship. And even if it pleases you, Lord, if there is someone today that hasn't known you as their Savior and Lord, the one that controls and, and cares for them, may they entrust their lives to you. Father, I pray that even as we go about our week, we will be reminded of our great promises and even how you denying some of our prayers, it is the best thing for us because you know what is good, you know what is best, and in your graciousness, you give us not what we deserve, but what you have intended for us. Lord, we're thankful. We ask that you continue to humble us and teach us. And may we praise the name of the Lord Jesus. That little baby that came in a manger is now a Lord and Savior and who will reign over this whole world as you promised. It is in his name that we praise you and worship you. Amen.